Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is historian and TV producer David Oloshoga, who, with co-author Kasper Eriksson, has recently published The Kaiser's Holocaust, a chilling account of Germany's bid in the 19th century to become an African colonial power, a venture which took a genocidal turn, and, the authors argue, was one of the roots of Nazism. Consider this 19th century opinion. Irreclaimable savages are destined to disappear from before the face of civilization as surely and perceptibly as a snow retreats before the advancing line of sunbeams. That opinion sums up the view of the majority of German colonists, yet it comes not from one of them, but from an English theologian, Frederick Farrar. And as the authors show, the belief that might was right was far from a uniquely German preserve. British, French, Belgian, Dutch colonists all can be found espousing it. So this book, in laying bare this dark area of colonial history, is much more than an indictment of German atrocities. It also reveals a mindset which informed the whole 19th century colonial project, and in Germany's case, as we'll hear, fueled the nationalistic fervour that culminated in National Socialism. But to begin at the beginning, how had David first encountered the story of what befell the Herero and Nama peoples of Southwest Africa over a century ago? I studied colonialism uh, in British colonial history at university, and I kept coming across in footnotes and throwaway references to what had happened in Namibia. And in the early noughties, the last decade, I became convinced as the anniversary of this event came up that this was the most important story in African history and, in, in my view, in, in, in wider world history. And so I got a grant from the Department for International Development, God bless them, and went to Namibia to start um, the production of a independent television documentary. It was then that I met Kasper Eriksson, the co-author of this book, and we made a documentary for the BBC together. And I was convinced, working with Kasper and being put onto more more sources, more archival material that Kasper had done in his work, which had begun almost a decade earlier, that this was a story that I couldn't just make a documentary about. I had to do more. And so Kasper and I decided we were going to write a book together. How difficult what was it to uncover the story? Because obviously elements of it have been completely suppressed and, and history really rewritten over, the, over mm-hmm. the top of it. So how hard was it to get at the, the truth of what happened? I think the most surprising thing about German colonialism in German Southwest Africa is how easy it is to access the German documents, the documents intercepted by the South African invaders in 1915. And more than that, it's surprising how much was recorded in the first place. One historian, a Dutch historian, Jan Bart Gewald, was pointed out that the level of detail of recording in what was a genocide must indicate that the, those involved, soldiers and civilian administrators, had just lost touch with, what, with the immorality of what they were doing. Incredible details are recorded. Uh, the percentages of people worked to death on the railway companies are, are worked out to two decimal places. I think the most shocking document is um, the, the Totenregister, the death registers in the concentration camps, which were pre-printed in Germany. And in the column cause of death, it had the words death to exhaustion. It's shockingly easy to find this material. It is all there in the Namibian National Archives. And with the help of Werner Hildebrecht, the great archivist there, uh, and with Kasper's work he'd done previously, it was all available to us. What has concealed this story is not the lack of documentary proof. It's the fact that an alternative uh, history, an alternative narrative of colonial history in Namibia had been orchestrated by those who had taken part and carried out the genocide, and that that had, that had overwhelmed the truth. And then after the, the First World War, the very thorough report which was done into the genocide was, was basically suppressed, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Copies of the, of the report were withdrawn and burned. 
The story of the, of the Blue Book, the, the report, which for very calculating and self-interested reasons the South Africans and the British carried out into what had happened in Namibia between 1904 and 1909, was, it was designed and it was used to strip Germany of her colonies. But the moment that had been done, and the moment South Africa, German Southwest Africa had become the South African colony of Southwest Africa, it was in no one's interest, well, no one with any power. It was in, not in their interest to maintain the story of extermination and genocide, because it was a barrier to white racial unity. And in a burgeoning uh, racial system, a system that was going to move towards apartheid, what mattered was the divisions between white and black, not the division between German and South African or Boer and British. And so it was expunged. It was it was written out of history with the complicity of the British Empire, as well as, as, well as South African authorities. And this is not a story that the British can feel entirely judgmental about or, or, or secure in, because Britain doesn't come out of the story very well at all. Now, Germany came late to the, the scramble for Africa, didn't it? It only came into being as a nation in the 1870s. So by the late 19th century, the, um, the hunt was on, really, for, for German territory that it, mm. could, it could lay claim to in Africa. So what was its project um, back at the beginning of its colonial enterprise? I mean, the question of how did the German Empire in Africa come about, uh, I think one of the, the, one of the great questions is how did it come about against the better judgment of Otto von Bismarck? who was never convinced, and I think to the end of his life remained unconvinced by the uh, the practicality of the German Empire. There was just an enormous amount of awareness in Germany of what other European nations had managed to grasp for themselves in Africa. Germany had become, they'd become great traders, they had trading stations in China off the west coast of Africa, and they were in some ways taking part in the, in the, in the colonial adventure, the trade adventure. But once it became aware, after unification, once Germans became aware of just how powerful and globally powerful the British in particular were, and the French to a lesser extent, it became imperative for Germans, Germany's project to become a great nation, that she had her share of what became a place in the sun. And I think it was a, it was a bottom-up movement. It was a popular movement that in the end influenced the politicians against their better judgment. Throughout the book, it's clear that popular opinion was very strong. There was a, a high degree of public awareness of the colonies and their importance to, to what it meant to be German. It was just so exciting. It was, uh, I think we've, we, we forget in the 21st century how exciting the colonial project of the late 19th century must have seen. Obscure lands you'd never heard of with exciting names exciting and exotic people brought to your city, kings you've never heard about, battles being fought. It was, and it did become, the stuff of Boar's Own Adventures. And it was an immensely exciting project. But for a country like Germany, in search of what many felt was her right, rightful place in the world as one of the great powers, the empire was not just exciting, it was the, the manifestation of the greatness that Germany sought and that many Germans felt was, was their, their birthright. Now, we, we know that the Germans to some extent, sought to emulate the British. They saw the British as kind of the, the models for, for running um, uh, an empire. But do you think the Germans approached the business of running colonies in a particularly unique way? The Germans were very well aware of a British concept of running empires, which was divide and rule. And I think they applied that no more ruthlessly and no less ruthlessly than the British. I think one of the big differences, the Germans ran an empire at an enormous financial loss. I think the reason why German Southwest Africa became German and rather than British is because there was nothing there. This is before diamonds had been discovered and copper had been discovered. And the British just would, didn't, wouldn't have wasted the candle on a colony like Southwest Africa. The question is, is the German empire run in a way that's more brutal than other empires? I, I don't think it is. I think the brutality is simply more systematic 
a more 20th century. I think in terms of, I mean, if you look at what happened to the Herero, 80% of them were exterminated, but they were very small people. So it's a very high proportion, but a very small number compared to what happened in the Belgian Congo and the King Leopold. So there's many ways of looking at uh, colonial misadventure and colonial atrocity. I think Germany's, Germany's experiences and Germany's actions are distinctive, but I don't think, I also think it's very useful to put the colonial crimes of European nations in some sort of league table. I don't think it's, it achieves anything. And I also think it somehow diminishes the responsibility of those involved because it creates this, this notion that this is what all Europeans did. It was inevitable. It was a terrible, lamentable, but ultimately meaningless phase in European history. And we all come out of it the same. I, I think that's a, that's a dead end historically. We've been talking about the Germans, but tell me something about the uh, indigenous cultures of the region. You've mentioned the Herero uh, mm-hmm. already, but tell me, tell me something about the peoples who, who lived on, on those lands. I think what's most striking about the Herero and Nama peoples of German Southwest Africa is how remote they are from the 19th century cliché of the African, the African that appears in the narratives of the explorers, in the Boers and Adventure books, the, the African who is barely dressed, who is semi-naked, who has never seen a white man, who, is, who runs at the first report of a rifle, and who is utterly unworldly and of his own environment and no knowledge of the world. The people of German Southwest Africa were utterly worldly. They understood the technology. They had had contact with the Boers for, uh, for decades. They had adopted the, uh, the methods of fighting that the Boers um, had brought to the Cape. They were Christian. They'd been in contact with the missionaries for decades. They wore European clothing. Uh, there's even reports that some of the clothing that the uh, German Southwest African Herero Nama people were wearing during the war were um, US Army surplus uniforms from the Spanish-American wars. They read the Cape newspapers. They spoke Dutch. Some of them spoke German. Some of them spoke English. These were worldly people. And what that meant was the elite and leaders, in particular Henry Gritboy, were people who understood the process of colonialism. They understood that a project to strip local leaders of their rights, make them subservient to European leaders was underway. He'd heard of the Conference of Berlin. He had an understanding that a great and dangerous force was entering his continent. And he was aware that he was aware that he was an African. He was in some ways an early Pan-Africanist. He understood that what matters was not the divisions between Africans, but the division between colonizers and the colonial peoples. And yet they again and again underestimate the depths to which the German colonizers would sink. They simply cannot believe the atrocities that they are capable of, and therefore they make themselves vulnerable again and again. I think the Herero and the Nama had a notion of war that was steeped in their traditions, and that's all war ever could be. A different sort of war was, was alien to them completely. They imagined that what happened in the colonial process was the people who stood up to colonialists, who fought a short war, showed that they weren't willing to keel over and hand over their land, that that would be respected, that colonialists wouldn't go to extremes, to next levels, to genocidal solutions and final solutions, because that wasn't in anyone's interest. I think they imagined that the German colonial authorities were more pragmatic than they actually were. And I think what they could never have imagined was the the emergence of a, of a form of racial thinking steeped in a distorted form of social Darwinism that was genocidal, that was an, an impulse that was genocidal, a vision of the world in which certain people simply had no future. I don't think they ever really fully understood that until it was far too late, because it is quite hard to believe. It is 
uh, you know, these are men born in the 19th century. And this is, in my view, the first manifestation of a 20th century form of genocidal colonialism in which extinction and extermination and genocide are at its core. And I think they didn't understand it any more than people of Europe in 1940 could understand it. I think the people of the Ukraine who rushed to the German army in 1940 to give bread and salt and, and, and flowers couldn't understand that those invaders had their extermination in mind because it didn't seem feasible, didn't seem practical. It wasn't practical. It's a very toxic brew, isn't it? This desire for a place in the sun coupled with this belief that nations, peoples struggle in the same way as creatures in, in, in nature struggle. And therefore, might is right. And if you come out on top, that meant that you were supposed to come out on top. It's a, a deeply toxic combination. And it's not unique to, to Germany. I think what's interesting is this event in German history happens almost at a high watermark of the social Darwinian Lebensraum view of colonialism. And it's used to justify an event that's immediate, that's happening. Well, the same ideas, the same theories were then used by European nations and by America to justify events retrospectively, events that had already happened. So when these ideas emerge in Britain, events that had been lamented as tragedies that had happened in the early part of the 19th century were suddenly redrawn and recast as evidence of social Darwinism, evidence that the weak races will inevitably be destroyed. So if you look at the Tasmanian genocide, the extermination of the Tasmanian Aboriginals by the British in the 1820s and 30s, at the time, those involved in it are deeply concerned that what they're doing is abhorrent to God. What they're concerned about fundamentally is their souls. And they do take serious actions to try to prevent the extermination of the Aboriginals, not actions that <laughs> that are successful, but they do have an attempt. They do feel that the extermination of a people is a, a mark on their soul, an indelible mark on their soul. In the 1870s, that event, with the hindsight of, of social Darwinism, is recast as inevitable proof that the dark races, the weak races, the living fossils, as they were called, had no future. So Germany is using those ideas to justify events it's carrying out, Britain and America who look, looks back at the, at the centuries of wars against the, Amer the Native Americans, they are using the same ideas to justify their history. One of the most shocking quotations in the book, I think, comes not from, from a German racial scientist or a proto-Nazi, but from Theodore Roosevelt, in essence saying the same thing, that great white civilization will prevail, and it is simply part of the ongoing process that the, he says that the, the red, the black, the yellow nations will, will, will cede. There's a habit of looking at German history and seeing it as unique and seeing it as standing outside the, 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 the normal progress of European and the, white, and the white races of the world. And I don't think that's true at all. I think that uh, this story shows that Germany was, was part of the modern world in that moment when social Darwinian views became current. Roosevelt, who was a correspondent of Kaiser Wilhelm, had very similar views. And one of the most difficult things about looking at German colonial history and German German history of the 1940s, is that you have people like, like Hermann Goering defending at Nuremberg their actions against the Jews and the Slavic peoples and comparing their attempt to create a racial empire, comparing it to the British Empire and to, German, and to America's extermination of the indigenous peoples. It's a very uncomfortable thing for us to hear and it is obviously something which Goering is doing to justify his appalling actions. But there is a grain of truth in it. There is some truth in the idea that the German rush for living space in Africa and then in the East was an attempt to recreate the very worst aspects of colonialism in the Americas and Africa.
At what point does it become possible to say that the German policy in Southwest Africa went from one of expropriation and, and, and management of the colony to one where genocide was actually their objective? I think that happened in January 1904. I think that that happened because of the public outcry to the uprising of the Herrera. I think there was there were dark murmurings and there were those in the colony who would like liked that to have happened, would like the, the indigenous people just to have disappeared and their land to have been handed over to them. But it was impractical, it was impossible. And so I think it becomes possible when you have the combination of a genocidal mindset and a military outrage. You have a country with a vast standing army suddenly humiliated by people they deem to be racially inferior. And you have a leader who is prepared to invest a hugely disproportionate amount of money and military power on punishing those who have dared to stand up to German military power. And there is an explicit extermination order given. So it's, it's, not, it's not simply a case that some soldiers ran amok and, and went too far, so to speak. It is actually a matter of recorded policy, isn't it? I think it's almost unique. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe other historians do. I don't know of another genocide in which there was a clear written order. Scholars of the Second World War talk about the unwritten order, that there is no direct evidence that links the Nazi leadership to the policy to exterminate the Jews other than the, the, um, the Vansay meeting. But obviously, we know from many sources that this was quite clearly uh, their policy. In Namibia, what you have is you have something very different. You have a, a written order explicitly describing the, the, the ethnic cleansing or extermination of the Herrera people from Namibia. And you have a, a less overt but implied threat against the Nama a few months later. But I think there's a, there's a danger in the extermination order of, of 1904 is that it pins what happened to the general who issued that, General Trotter. And that's been an argument that those who've defended German actions have used, that, that this was a, a, a rogue general, this was a, a general who'd lost track of, of the, uh, the traditions of warfare. I think that's a very dangerous argument because the genocide continues after Trotter has left the colony, after he's lost his command. I think there is a genocidal mindset within the administration, within the army, and within the colonial administrators who were then sent out to replace him. But you do have this, this, this unique, unique written order that was written down on paper, translated, and given out as a, as a document to people who were then forced to go and spread the news amongst their people that they were going to be exterminated or driven off the land. One of the many chilling things in the book for me was the extent to which science or pseudoscience and anthropology and academic disciplines and institutes in general were enthralled by this um, social Darwinism and, and sought all sorts of elaborate, outlandish means, some of them very, very, very cruel and barbaric, to, to prove the truth behind what they had asserted. There's a, there's a long process in which Germany plays a belatedly quite a, an important part of attempting to, to categorize and prove the hierarchy of races. It, I think the first country that dominates this is America in the 1850s and 1860s, where a great discourse of, uh, of, of scientific racism and craniology and the study of the, uh, the, the physical attributes of the various races becomes very current. By 1904, Germany, with its new empire in which to carry out these experiments, is taking an increasingly leading role in this, in this, this global endeavour. There's a mawkish element that whenever genocide, whenever extermination, whenever war happens in the German empire, that the scientists, the race scientists, the craniology, the phrenologists are corresponding with soldiers very quickly to try to get the body parts of the victims, that this very disturbing trade in skulls and human remains, and often human severed heads, 
is always there bubbling under the surface behind the, uh, the, the, the military action. And it becomes, it becomes a big industry in German Southwest Africa, in the concentration camps, because for once you have a people who are dying in very high numbers, but who are contained. So the, the transportation of their body parts to German scientists, to institutes who are desperate to get hold of these, this material, um, becomes very easy and very profitable. You spoke earlier about the, the sort of colonial frenzy that accompanied the, the, the first German colonies in Southwest Africa. Tell me a little bit about the kind of after image that those colonies left, because that's, that's clearly very important for what happens in the, the 1920s and, and the mm. 1930s. This sense of, of something having been lost or taken away mm. that, that, that was their ride. The confiscation of the German colonial empire by the Treaty of Versailles uh, and, the, and the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 was bitterly resented by huge swathes of the German population because it was part of the Treaty of Versailles, a hate document that had taken so much else from Germany. Every right-wing party, every centrist party, absolutely had to oppose the loss of the empire, absolutely had to have this as at the centre of their programme that they wanted the, the colonies back. And so it becomes an issue that is swept up in the the emergence of right-wing political parties in German, the Germany, the interwar Germany, the Germany of the Weimar years. But it also becomes seen as a lost paradise, that what had happened briefly was that Germany had had a place where the German people had been free. They had been freed from the, uh, the urbanization and the industrialism that had blighted modern Germany. They'd been freed from the Jewish industrialists who'd been behind this, this process. And that only in the colonies, now that so many million Germans, Germans have been driven off their, their farmland, that only in the colonies had the Germans been able to live a truly German life. And German Southwest Africa in particular is seen as this, this, this lost paradise. And books are published describing the lives of, uh, of the settlers who had lived there in paradisal terms, that this was, this was the, greatest, the greatest place ever to live, that Germans had had huge amounts of space, that they had lived this frontier life that had allowed them to discover their inner self, their inner Germanness. And all that had been taken away by the hated British and the hated French, by this awful evil document, the, the, uh, the, the Treaty of Versailles. And so the, the, the desire to, to reclaim that territory becomes a central and absolutely obligatory policy of every party of the right, including the National Socialist Party. So on your account, Nazism becomes less of an aberration in history and more of a culmination, which I suppose is the way that Hermann Goering would see it, but with a very different value attached to that, but the culmination of something terrible that had been breeding and festering from the 19th century on. I think aspects of Nazism, I think some aspects of Nazism are inherited from the, the Germany of the Kaisers. Some aspects are arguably original. But I think there's one aspect of colonialism, of Nazism, which is part of a continuum within European history. And that is a, a belief in a racially pure empire based on the idea of living space, that all great people inevitably need to expand the amount of space they have because their populations are on the rise, because they are virile and strong people, and that that can be done ex at the expense of the weak races who are doomed, who are natural slaves or doomed to, to extinction. And that informs much of the thinking behind the German attitude towards the Slavic peoples of the East. And there's a complication here, a, a very, very important complication, is that the German view, the Nazi view of the Jews, I think, is distinct and different. The Jews are in the Nazi mindset are a dangerous people, a parasitic people, who have undermined Germany, who stabbed Germany in the back in 1919. I think that's less of a colonial, a colonial mindset. But the view towards the Slavs, the, the Russians, the people of the, of the East, I think is deeply colonial. And their treatment, the vision that the Nazis have in particular 
Hitler has of the role that the Slavs would play in the German Empire that would subsume Russia and go from Germany's western borders to the Urals. The view of the place that the Slavs would hold in that empire, I think, is classically colonial. After Germany had been stripped of its colonies under the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War, what did the future hold for the people of Southwest Africa? At the time of the Paris Peace Conference, the treatment by South Africa of its own black population was becoming apparent to everybody who wanted to look that this was a highly racialized system, that this was a very brutal system. So handing over the people of German Southwest Africa who had been the victim of a genocide to South Africa cannot be seen in any way as uh, a beneficial or, or a, a, uh, an act of charity. The British knew and understood the sort of system that the Southwest Africans would be submit would have to submit to under South African rule. What happens to them is that that Southwest Africa becomes a province of South Africa, and that all of the things that we know about in the trajectory of South African history, the rise of apartheid, the past laws, those same laws are applied to Southwest Africa. And South Namibia's history is parallel and is part of Southwest Africa, Southwest African history up until 1991. The German colonists, the German settlers, and the British settlers who have gone there in their thousands are complicit in this and take part in this, and the, the division between black and white becomes the only one that really matters. And so the history of the Herrera and the Nama, which have been characterized by exploitation and genocide up to 1919, becomes one of, um, of them being put onto reservations, of them being put into townships, and all these were the, the words, townships, and all, the, all the, the infrastructure, the complicated infrastructure of apartheid, you can see still in Namibia, the deep insistence on dividing people into ethnic groups to prevent any sense of black loyalty, black unity, uh, you can see in Namibia. And you can see the rise of, um, of SWAPA, which is the, the Namibian equivalent of the ANC. And in some ways, um, the struggle in Namibia was one of the, 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 the great military struggles that brought down apartheid. And uh, many Namibians, when they look at their history, they see their struggle against the South Africans as just as central to their history as their oppression by the Germans. That really leads me on to my last question, because I wanted to ask you finally, what mental and physical traces you think have been left on Namibia today? Well, Namibia is one of the world's newest countries. I mean, independence, it's only been independent for 20 years. And it's just emerging from a century of colonialism, German and then South, Af South African colonialism. So you're just getting the first generation of black Namibians who were educated in a new system away from what the South Africans called the Bantu Education Act, are people who are just beginning to be determined to remember their history, to question and reject the colonial fantasy version of history that was begun by the Germans and expanded by the South Africans. So you have a country emerging from the shadow of colonialism 20, 30, 40 years later than the rest of Africa. So it's just beginning... It's a fascinating time in Namibia. The past is emerging, often of its own volition, from the deserts. Human remains have been found in the deserts. People are becoming opposed to the statues commemorating the war that the Germans, the Germans built um, just before the First World War. And so you're having a, a rejection of a state history, a, a, a seemingly impervious and, and solid history um, manifested in statues and in street names. That's being challenged and rejected. So this year, the um, the, the Ryder statue, which was the statue to the uh, the fallen German soldiers who took part in the genocide, that's been removed from the centre of Vintuk, from outside the old German fort. And that, that's really exciting, that uh, this seemingly permanent history is beginning to crumble. David Olusogo, 
The book which he co-wrote with Kasper Eriksson is called The Kaiser's Holocaust and is out now in hardback. That's all from this podcast from Faber and Faber, but you can find out more about the featured title by visiting the Faber website at faber.co.uk. You'll also find a podcast archive there of nearly 50 author interviews. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Faber podcast, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.